Welcome to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, a podcast that aims to demystify, explore, and provide a semblance of simplicity to the ever-evolving, complex world of oncology, a land filled with clinical trials, changing options for our patients, and ever-increasing survival statistics. As always, I am accompanied here by my illustrious co-host, Dr. Michael Fernando. By far the least illustrious on a very illustrious podcast. It's even more illustrious than usual today, Josh. It is. And do you want to know, know why? This is because we are joined here by a very special guest, Dr. Megan Crumbaker. Hi, Megan. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Thanks, thanks for being on the show. So, Megan, to give a little bit of a background about Megan, um, our special guest, she's exceptionally hardworking. She's brilliant. Just going to use all, all of the acronyms here, Megan, to introduce you. But to talk a little bit about Megan, she is a medical oncology specialist who specializes in genitourinary cancers. She's previously done a PhD through for prostate genomics and currently is heads up or works in the trial center at the Kinghorn Cancer Center here in Sydney, New South Wales. Yeah, definitely don't head up the trials unit, but uh, lead. Sorry, lead Anthony. No urinary cancers. <laughs> <laughs> um, wonderful. So I might I might get introduced with the, the first question, which is usually our origin section, Megan. For those that can't hear, Megan has a little bit of an accent, but and she did her undergraduate through Rice University. I would love to know the story that led to you, I guess, doing undergrad in the states and then really coming across to Australia to do the rest of, I guess, your med school training and what, I'll start with that so I don't steal all the questions and then we can kind of ask from there. So um, so I'm American. I grew up in Florida and um, yep, I did my undergraduate degree at Rice University, which is a small university in Houston, Texas. And I took a year off between my undergraduate degree and starting med school in the States um, and went traveling and met my now husband in Europe, who is Australian. So it was a cliched Kantiki love story. Um, and uh, after we met, um, I deferred my scholarship and slot in med school in the U.S. and um, came out to Australia on a work visa just to see how we went and then um, stayed. And that was back in 2005. Um, so did med school at Sydney Uni and then have done all my training here since and stuck around because it's a bit more of a pleasant place to work in medicine than the U.S. and a lot less polarized politically these days too, which is a added bonus. That's, that's uh, I guess, very true, but uh, you wouldn't have known that at the time. Uh, from the politics perspective, maybe. No, 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 no. My crystal ball didn't didn't foresee that. That no, no, I don't think anyone's did. Um, but obviously, um, Megan, you have you have a, a huge um, body of work in in um, uh, GU cancers and specifically prostate. And your PhD was in prostate genomics. Um, what was the uh, what was the light bulb moment, or what was the impetus for choosing that as a as a specific area of focus for your PhD? Yeah, so I did my first two years of training at um, Royal North Shore, so advanced training, and then I did a genourinary um, clinical trials fellowship at Westmead. Um, and I really knew I liked genourinary um, as a subspecialty. I think it it really between prostate, kidney, bladder, and testis, you get a really wide variety of prognoses, different demographics, and really different treatment types. So you really get to use kind of the whole arsenal that medical oncologists have. Um, and so um, I was looking for a genourinary PhD. Um, I was hoping to avoid a PhD if possible. That's why I did the third um, clinical year, which I think is great from a clinical point of view, but but um, it didn't do anything to help me avoid doing a PhD. But um, but basically, I was just looking around. I was trying to find um, some place where I could do a PhD, where I could get some clinical work um, and do um, a general urinary PhD. Um, and I met Anthony Joshua, and um, he really appealed as a supervisor, and there was a – I could do clinic with him, um, really busy – GU clinic and um and basically he kind of was like the world's your oyster here at the Garvin um go and speak to a few different people and um see who kind of floats your boat for doing a PhD with them and he mentioned several names and I went to meet with a few different people um and that was back in 2016 and really genomics was really and especially in prostate cancer but really in all tumor types you know 
um, personal medicine and, and um, sequencing and everything was kind of the hot topic for everything and but just emerging because it's quite expensive and not necessarily accessible. And so it did seem like a good idea to add that skill to my um, toolbox, I guess, tools in my toolbox. Um, uh, and so I met with someone, uh, my other supervisor, Vanessa Hayes, who um, did prostate cancer genomics um, as part of, well, she's a genomicist and does quite a few different um, things, but prostate cancer is one of them, and um, and had a chat to her. <clears throat> and, um, and I wanted to make sure I, um, when I did the PhD, I really wanted to make sure, I'll go into this a little bit because I know a lot of oncologists are, or trainees are thinking about PhDs and whatnot, but, and so I'll go through my thought process, but basically I wanted to, um, do something that expanded my skill set, um, in something that was really topical at the time. And so to me, genomics was, and GU particularly, um, because immunotherapy wasn't really showing success yet and or, well, still isn't really in, in, um, prostate cancer, GU can't, uh, a lot of the G, they hadn't, hadn't really been tested in a lot of the GU cancers yet. Um, and I was looking for a, I was looking for a combination kind of lab um, and clinical PhD because if I put all my eggs in one basket and was relying on a clinical trial to recruit and everything, it really felt like that PhD would um, could be problematic if that trial closed down. I, I knew of a few colleagues that had, had that situation and they you know adapted and whatnot, but but it seemed good to kind of develop some skills where I I, I kind of looked behind the veil of what happens in the lab and how this genomic report gets spat out, which is really, it was really enlightening. I think a lot of people take for granted that information um, and how black and white it is. Um, and I also wanted us with, with that combination of lab and clinical, I also want to make sure my supervisor had, um, my lab supervisor had supervised um, clinicians before, because it is its own kind of kettle of fish because um uh, you know, I'm a bit older than the average um, kind of science PhD student at the Garvin. I have done a lot in my career already, uh, had done. Um, and um, and also I was going to be doing part-time clinical work, which is always going to have me back and forth, even on my non-clinic days, you know, you're going to get calls and whatnot. So I wanted to have someone that would um, understand that situation. Um, and so that's what I was looking for when I was doing my PhD. Because really when you're looking for a PhD, PhD students are cheap labor. You're you're really popular. You kind of think, oh, who will take me? But but a lot of people are going to want you. So you can really kind of tailor things to what you're looking for if you if you kind of know what you're looking for. I think is a thing. Not really a light bulb moment exactly. It was really a kind of slow evolution of figuring out what I wanted by talking to other people and realizing I had to do a PhD to get a metropolitan job. Yeah. <laughs> Which I'm glad I didn't. But <laughs> at the time. Yeah. It's always daunting, I think, when you when you look, you know, you've already done what, 10, 15 years of study slash work and you're like, great, here's another potentially four plus years trying to do a PhD, which is a new set of skills. You're like, I finally, not maybe not masterly, I finally got to a point where I can, you know, clinically I'm quite proficient and now you're kind of back to being that student. Absolutely. It was a... There's a lot of uncomfortable parts of the, in as being a PhD student, and I think some of them are more uncomfortable having gone through and kind of, in theory, kind of gotten to, you know, well, gotten to be a specialist and feel like I know my stuff and then being thrown back into the deep end with a completely new set of um, objectives that I had to learn. But um, it did mean that you know, some people do a PhD just to tick a box, but that's never been my style. I wanted something that if I was going to do it, I wanted to come out with new skills, new knowledge. Um, and and with the genomics, what I was hoping to do, and I think, you know, just having um, helped a lot of collaborators recently and done a few interviews, helping some researchers and whatnot, what I'm trying, what I thought I wanted, what I wanted to do was be the kind of bridge between the scientists and the clinicians, because I think a lot of times the two parties are saying the same words, but meaning completely different things, or, um, you know, the vision that the scientist has for what they're studying and how it will translate into clinical practice is completely different from the reality of what might happen or or vice versa. So, so um, you know, I wanted to kind of Gain, I was never going to get as, uh, you know, I'm not a um, computational biologist. I'm not a, um, 
I, you know, I haven't, I'm not an, a full academic um, science between the two to help um, kind of um, uh, make it so um, really important translational work can make it into the clinic. It can kind of span that gap in, in the knowledge between the two different parties if um, I can help facilitate that. Yeah, that's a really nice way of looking at it. And I think the question I had before we move on from, I guess, the PhD perspective, what is the what is the best skill you like? What's the thing? I mean, I understand what your objectives were, but what's the skill that you kind of like? Yeah. I took that from my PhD. I am, you know, yes, it's a hard path, but I am just, it, it kind mm. of satisfy your need for like, I, I did this and I, I'm actually better now than I was. In genomics terms, I think the biggest thing is, is I understand when I order genomics test, whether it's genetic or somatic, um, I understand what I'm looking for in that test. Um, and I understand the limitations of that test. Um, and I also understand what the report means when it comes out. And that sounds like a really basic skill, but it's actually a skill most clinicians don't have. Um, uh, so I think understanding the limitations, so I think a lot of times um, with genomics, um, you know, people look at the gene list and say, oh, these genes are relevant. But for prostate cancer, it's not just the genes, you know, it's not single nucleotide variants, it's actually copy number alterations that are more important. And a lot of the commercial assays don't look at that. Um, and that's really important if you, so certain cancers you know, it's not just about the gene list, it's about what cancer you're looking at and what are you looking for. So when you're ordering the test, you really need to know what those limitations are. And, and most clinicians will just kind of order the test. Um, and then it's also being, a, a, so I think it's, it's, it's kind of understanding what I'm ordering and what the result is, but also understanding better how they explain it to the patients um, and what their limitations are. Because I think, um, you know, uh, they oftentimes go in this assumption, oh, you're testing my genes, so if it comes back in negative, my or like say for genetic, my hereditary risk is nothing or something like that. Um, and 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 explain, find, figuring out ways to explain. You know, we're only testing a limited number of genes. We're not even testing all the genes and and things like variants of uncertain significance that come out. Um, being able to explain that, and I think a lot of GU oncologists are now hadn't appreciated the, how commonly they're going to get these variants of uncertain significance and what that actually means. Um, because now we're doing a lot more BRCA1 and BRCA2 testing um, for prostate cancer, for PARP inhibitors, and for clinical trials. And we're getting these gray zones. So I think a, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of people initially when we're talking about personalized medicine and everything thought, okay, I'm going to order this test and I'm going to get, yes, there's something I can target or no, there's not. And in fact, more often than not, the answer is, yes, there's something, but we don't know if it's targetable or relevant or not. And that that's because the knowledge is still accumulating. So I think that's the biggest skill is understanding how to interpret um, the what, what, my, what the genomics test is testing and what that result means. Um, and I think that's been useful because I think I've had a, I've had a lot of emails from different um, GU oncologists kind of asking questions. They've gotten some result, results and whatnot and aren't actually sure what to do about them. And so being able to help with that has been really good. And then also being able to kind of help the interpretation when with my own patients because I'm doing a lot of genomics testing and not kind of fobbing them off with a with a quick quick kind of glossing over answer. So they do truly understand what what's been tested and what questions have not been answered by that test. Absolutely. Uh, it really does sound like uh, for a, from our level, uh, Megan, for, uh, you know, it's sort of like us getting a call from someone uh, in ED and they're, or they're asking about prognosis of someone who has a, an EGFR mutation in their lung cancer or something and having that insight, but obviously at a much more complex and involved level, which is fantastic. Yeah, I think I think the thing is, is um, like the EGFR mutation, those activating mutations, it, there's like really specific exons and really specific mutations that we know are pathogenic. And I think in a, that's great for those cancers. Um, and, you know, uh, in like melanoma, we've got the BRAF and we've got specific mutations like the V600E. Um, but in prostate cancer and a lot of and a lot of tumors now, we're doing a lot of research only kind of um, assays and we're doing a lot of testing and um, it's kind of, you know, looking at big swaths of the gene. And so you're going to get a lot of mutations that are completely irrelevant and you need to be able to interpret that. But also 
um, when you're not looking for a very specific mutation like you are, say, in melanoma, BRAF, um, mutant melanoma, or even the limited mutations in lung cancer, you're going to get a lot that are still, it's still unknown. I mean, BRCA1 and BRCA2 are really big genes, so you get a lot of mutations, um, and we don't know whether there's a lot that are still unclassified, whether they're benign or pathogenic or, or uncertain. Well, I think we've got a number of questions on on BRCA. You probably answered all of them already, um, but I'm sure we'll come to that a bit later. Um, but obviously a huge area of research and developing research. But I guess one thing that you said, Megan, that really struck me is that you you sort of looked at that as a, as a pathway, as, as, as yourself and, and Josh have said, to, to add to your skill set. And so leading on from that is you also went to Princess Margaret or um, underwent a Princess Margaret Education Fellowship. And was it a similar sort of thought process where, you know, you you wanted uh, to uh, add to the, add to the, as you said, the toolbox that uh, you had available? Yeah, so, um, so the Princess Margaret, um, that was about um, three and a half to four months that I did during my PhD. And that was um, funded through a Beverly Alt um, fellowship that um, we're lucky enough to have locally at the Garvin and Kinghorn. Um, so I did an application and, and it gives you some funds to basically fund kind of the travel or whatnot. Um, and so that was um, in Trevor Pugh's lab at um, Princess Margaret um, in Toronto. And um, he particularly does a lot of circulating tumor DNA, um, not not specifically in prostate, um, but in, in he has a humongous lab and, and they do a lot of different tumor types. But they did have a project that already had samples um, uh, that I could utilize um, uh, when I went over there because three to four months is not a long time to achieve much. You need to make sure the ethics are in place and there's samples and things like that. So so um, so I was going over there because the the um, work I was doing at the Garvin was more whole genome sequencing and actually optical mapping. So um, technology that's being used, but not not really practical for um, it's expensive and, and pretty cumbersome. So it's great for research, but not great practically for for most clinical applications. And so, um, you know, ctDNA is is emerging as a major thing. And in prostate cancer, we get a lot of bone metastases that aren't easily biopsiable and the DNA that comes out is pretty rubbish a lot of times. It was something that seemed really important to learn more about. Um, uh, so I kind of understood the spectrum of different different DNA sequencing um, and assessing technologies. Um, and so, yeah, and 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 basically it was leveraging one of my supervisors, Anthony Joshua's um, pre-existing um, contacts. Um, and I think oftentimes for travel fellowships, you really the best way to do it is to leverage some of your supervisors or, or previous um previous consultants um contacts um uh so it was partly that that relationship was there so it was easy to easier to kind of get get my foot in the door there it was a, a technology that i thought was important to learn um in uh and in a new environment because you know um even if you learn you can learn the same thing i mean we know in medicine you go from one hospital to another and even like um how you prescribe an iron fusion is different. You think that should be pretty black and white. So, so going someplace different was good. Um, while I was there, it was mainly lab, but I did do just observership. I, um, I, it wasn't enough time to really um, worry about the paperwork and visa to, to be able to do a clinical actual work. Um, but I did observership in the clinics just to see how things were were done over there, which was actually really um, interesting as well. That's that's amazing, Megan. I think you're very much at the forefront back in 2016, thinking about ctDNA, and you know it's 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 in almost every study these days to some extent, looking at it and the applications moving forward. I might jump across to the wisdom and I guess the pearl section that we like to chat about on our interviews and I think the first one's a bit of a hard I don't know if it's a hard question or a controversial question prostate specific antigen we're talking about prostate cancer here used as a screening tool in the mass population in Australia there's been a lot of I guess discussion um, especially in the older populations where the people should get routine screening and I notice that a lot of the time it's the oncologist, you don't sort of hear the oncologist side of it. I guess I'd love to hear what your thoughts are from just a routine screening perspective of using PSA. 
Yeah, I guess the oncologists don't weigh up into it too much because we tend to treat more advanced and metastatic patients. So they've already kind of gone through the screening and localized or not localized. So it's generally the urologists that weigh in more. And and, and a lot of times their, their, their opinion is probably more relevant. I think so the, you know, the U.S. guidelines, the European guidelines, as well as the Australian guidelines, the GPs, is that it should be an individual decision. And, and you know, they do give an age range, but they do say, you know, that's not restrictive, that you shouldn't test outside of that age range, but it's a guideline. And then they also say that GPs shouldn't really be doing the rectal examination that um, uh, as a screener. Um, and so that, I mean, that the rectal examination has also... Um, uh, garnered some controversy um, from from urologists thinking that that it's still a valuable tool as well Um, and it's not and certainly the guidelines aren't saying don't do it but they're saying GPs should be doing kind of focusing on a um, population um, an age group um, I think I think it's 50 to 70 um, that if they're treated for that prostate cancer it's still going to be meaningful um, uh, as far as kind of their longevity if it was a localized cancer and also um, and and um, you know, kind of referring for the more more specialized tests um, after that. Um, and I think the main thing, I think it's, 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 I guess there's two things. I guess, I think PSA is really valuable, but imperfect test. So if it was a perfect cancer test, it would be positive if it, there's cancer and negative if there's not cancer. And clearly that's not the case um, because every, you know, if you've got a prostate, you're going to have a PSA level. Um, uh, and so it's got, it's a very flawed test. Um, uh, and, um, and I think, I think, but I think putting it onto GPs to have that individual discussion, I think, I think it is, um, a better approach than just blindly doing it because there's a lot of men that you wouldn't be doing a prostate cancer biopsy on, even if they had an elevated PSA or whatnot. Um, uh, because, um, uh, you just wouldn't be treating a prostate cancer. Um, and then there's a lot of men that, you know, and if they're in their nineties or whatnot, then what are you necessarily achieving? If they've got a localized cancer, you're not going to do a prostatectomy and you're not going to do, you know, um, intensive radiotherapy. So I guess, you know, I guess you got to think about the goal of screening and it's to pick up a localized cancer and um, a localized cancer is going to have a really good prognosis anyway. And so if whether you do something or not in, in prostate cancer, so, if, you know, if you're going to pick up a cancer that's probably going to behave for the next few years to several years, then should you be, should you be bothering to pick up that cancer? I guess is the question. And there's, there's men where the answer is no. The tricky thing is, is, you know, there's plenty of 60 year olds that, that have a lot of comorbidities and, and I've got plenty of 90 year olds that not plenty, but I've got 90 year olds that I, you know, are chemo, chemo candidates. So it does need to be an individual discussion. And I think, I think, you know, the GPs are under so much stress, especially after COVID and so under-resourced. I think I think we just need to make sure that the educational tools they get to have that discussion are easily accessible and, and probably some resources that patients can read um, on it that have been put together by, you know, urologists and GPs together um, on the point. And hopefully those exist. I, I mean, I know there's a lot of resources, but hopefully there's something that's that's been developed that's quite simple but but in not being a urologist I'm not sure but I'm not sure that there is something but but it's a very nuanced discussion because it you know it needs to take into account family history and fitness and 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 there needs to be an explanation of PSA not being a perfect test and and whatnot I mean we all have those cases that come and say oh you know my GP didn't do my PSA for two years and now I've got this terrible metastatic cancer and I guess, you know, those are the nightmare cases that you hear the same about colonoscopy, you know, um, uh, so all screening tests, you're going to miss some cases, but you've got to be pragmatic. I mean, you're not going to biopsy. The biopsy is not comfortable. A lot of men aren't going to agree to it. And then the MRI is quite costly. The biopsy is costly. The gold standard is a perineal biopsy, transperineal biopsy. So you do have to be practical when the bucket of money is uh, finite. Um and but I think it, it's tricky. That's a lot for a GP to cover in a in a short consultation in a man that probably has other things that need to be looked at. Um, and so I think I think it's I think the guidelines are correct, but we just need to make sure we're resourcing the GPs to for them to be able to kind of make those calls if it's going to be a case by case 
basis and do it easily because they're just under so much stress from a workload and resource point of view already. As as with everything, it's much more nuanced than it might seem from from certain points of view. So that's a very comprehensive answer, Megan. Thank you. Um, we are recording this episode towards the month of November, or Movember, as it is commonly known in prostate cancer circles. Um, and I guess it is one of those cancers that is very uh, present in the minds of the general population. But it has fallen, for want of a better phrase, fallen by the wayside in that it hasn't been uh, had those visible leaps forward. Um, I'm thinking predominantly with, with immunotherapy that some other cancers have had. But that's not to say there's nothing exciting happening in, in prostate cancer. So, I mean, from, from someone who's really at the cutting edge, Megan, what, what from your perspective are the, the most exciting developments that we've had in prostate cancer um, over the past few years and into the future? Yeah. So, I mean, even since I was a trainee, so since 2015, we've gotten access to, we've gotten Abiraterone and um, uh, Enzalutamide um, for castrate resistant disease. We've had those, um, uh, those and other similar drugs move into the hormone sensitive space, but unfortunately we're still waiting the PBS access. Um, fingers crossed Apalutamide comes on soon because it's been approved by PBAC. And that's, that's greatly um, improved um, outcomes for men. Um, but I guess the bigger things coming through are um, the radionuclide um, therapy, so PS lutetium PSMA, um, uh, and that's a great treatment for a large proportion of men because it's low toxicity and you have a screening test with the PET scan to um, kind of judge the likelihood that they're going to have a good response to that treatment. But again, the big thing is access. Um, but the PSMA, the you know, the radionuclide treatments, um, they have a lot of appeal, but there's still room for improvement on on kind of duration of response and, and getting those men who don't have PSMA expression, figuring out what we can do for them. Um, but um, so the radionuclide treatments, and then I guess there's a targeted therapy. So um, uh, so we've got the PARP inhibitors, um, which, you know, I think, I think for the proportion of men that have a mutation, um, which is a relevant mutation, you're looking at kind of 10, 10 to 15% of men with castrate resistant um, prostate cancer. Um, it's another option. Um, uh, and, you know, there's, there's evolving data to say, maybe we're going to be using it in all comers um, as well um, with um, Propel and Talapro2 um, having positive findings in, in all comers in the castrate resistant setting in combination with an androgen sensitizing as uh, so androgen signaling inhibitor. Um, so a lot of evolution there. Um, and then with that, we've also got the um, other targeted drugs, like um, uh, we've got the AKT inhibitors and um, uh, some, some cell cycle um, uh, targeting agents coming through that, you know, have shown pretty good success in breast cancer. So there's a lot, it's a very active area of research and there's a lot of um, therapies coming through. I'd say I'm most excited by the radionuclide um, treatments like the lutetium PSMA, just because the toxicity is so low and it's a, and there is the, um, you know, diagnostic side um, of doing the PET scan to be able to see what's, what the PSMA expression's like um, and, and somewhat um, have some assistance in predicting whether that's a suitable treatment for the patient or not. But I think we're, 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 we're getting spoiled for choice, but there's a lot of these treatments that are only benefiting a smaller set, set of men um, or we're not able to access them unless it's on a trial or the patient self-funds it. And so I think that's where we're really falling down as we keep a lot of new things are coming through and we're excited by certain things, but, you know, the lutetium PSMA, there's been an um, application to, to get um, it funded through the government and, and that's hit a lot of obstacles um, so far, even though it's a treatment that has been around and has some, um, has randomized uh, phase three and a randomized phase two study data to support um, its utility. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, Megan. The barriers in Australia, I guess, from the PBS, especially when there's no known benefit, I think, with robust evidence to support more lines of therapy. I know in breast cancer we have multiple lines, and in prostate you have a couple, and then you're like, okay, 
we need to start really looking at a clinical trial after you know four or five um, four or five i guess lines one of the questions uh, i guess i've always struggled with uh, is how do you choose between the different I guess modern day sort of anti-androgens. I'm talking about the enzalutamides and the, you know, the abiraterones and like, how do you kind of figure out what's best in which circumstance? Yeah. Yeah. I guess the big players, right. I mean, we've had ab- abiraterone and enzalutamide for since I think about 2015. Um, and we've got access to that in the castrate resistant space, but we know the efficacy is much higher and the outcomes are much more improved if you move that into the hormone sensitive space. Um, and so with that, um, really, I think people got excited by enzalutamide not having to use the um, steroid. Um, but, and so I think when Inza first kind of got, became available, um, a lot of people did switch over to enzalutamide. It's a bit like in kidney cancer where a lot of people switched from suiting over to pazopinib. But then a lot of people that are specifically niche kind of geo-oncologists have switched back to preferring abiraterone. Um there's been some studies, but they're all, you know, low, low level evidence that, that maybe Inza is a bit more um, potent and, and better to use kind of first. Um, uh, and uh, Aberat, sorry, Aberaterone is. Um, and, and I think what, but mo- what I think efficacy wise, um, there's probably not too much of a difference between the different ones. Um, I probably still favor Aberaterone, but from a side effect point of view, if we're talking strictly abiraterone and enzalutamide, um, I think most people find that the cognitive um, side effects and the fatigue um, side effects are a lot um, more common in enzalutamide than probably get the impression from the clinical trials um, would would kind of lead you to believe they are. Um, it is the, the fatigue and the cognitive impairment is um, dose dependent and um, you know, enzalutamide is one of those drugs that the um, maximum tolerated dose model prob- uh, of dose finding resulted in enzalutamide being way overdosed um, versus what, what an effective anti-cancer dose would be. So most GU oncologists are happy to to drop the dose um, and not worry about a compromise in efficacy for enzalutamide. But I just have had, there's a lot of men that get that fatigue and um and um, really fuzzy cognitively. Um, and they're already feeling that with the ADT that they're on in the long term. So, so I tend to not use enzalutamide in most cases, and my preference tends to be abiraterone unless there's a reason not to. Expanding out though, apalutamide, darolutamide, you know, apalutamide hopefully is going to um, be accessible for hormone sensitive disease. Um, apalutamide, you get like a one in five to one in three men get a rash. That's annoying. And you don't really see that so much with the other um, drugs, but I will be using that if it's accessible in the hormone sensitive setting because it, efficacy wise, it's great. And generally, you know, they are well tolerated and, and the rash is manageable, but it's just kind of annoying compared to the others. Um, uh, and darolutamide, you don't get the cognitive side effects, you don't get the fatigue, and you don't get the um, uh, cognitive impairment that you see with um, enzalutamide and apalutamide because it's configured differently and doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. Um, so kind of if I'm choosing between enza, apa, and darolutamide and, and I was able to access them equally, I'd go for darolutamide because it's in theory a little bit more potent and the side effects are less. Um, but when you're talking about accessibility wise right now, um, we're going to be able to access hopefully APA in the hormone sensitive setting soon on PBS and, and they're all good enough drugs. that I'm not going to worry if that's the one that I've got access to. That's the one I'll be giving if, if, if I don't have a trial access for, for anything else. Um, and, um, and then the, um, castrate resistant or, or all things being equal, um, uh, in the castrate resistance setting on PBS, I tend to favor abiraterone if they haven't had one of those agents before. Yeah, there's a lot of sort of subtleties in there, I guess, and a lot of clinical considerations, as you've said already mm. multiple times. It's a it's an individual case, but that's really interesting what you said about the, the enzalutamide and it being overdosed. I wasn't aware of that. Look. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, they went up to... Uh, a higher dose and, you know, just the, you know, the way these phase one... Um, 
studies are designed for dose escalation. You go up until the maximum tolerated dose when a certain number of people get toxicity. So you go up until a certain number of toxicities, um, dose limiting toxicities occur, and then your dose that you choose is the next dose level down from that. So it has nothing to do with the minimal effective dose. It's really the maximum tolerated dose as MTD in phase one, you know, stands for. So you're getting you're getting a lot of drugs where you're 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 giving a lot more drug than you need for anti-cancer effect. And enzalutamide, I'm not going to go into the ins and outs of it, but far more clever people than me, like Howard Gurney, who who has a really strong um, pharmacology background, uh, you know, very strongly believe that um, and have evidence to support that enzalutamide is one of those ones that um, you're not going to compromise efficacy if you drop the dose, but you're certainly going to reduce those side effects quite significantly. So I don't start a lower dose up front for most men with enzalutamide, um, unless they're particularly elderly or have um, are going to have drug-drug interactions. Because enzalutamide, again, one of the downsides is it has more drug-drug interactions than abiraterone. Um, but um, but I don't hesitate to drop the dose if, if I run into those side effects. The hardest thing is get, convincing the patient to drop the dose, even when they're quite miserable, because, of course, they're worried it's going to compromise the efficacy. But it's one of those drugs you know, in kidney cancer, you need a dose to toxicity with those TKIs, but but enzalutamide, I'm not worried. I I don't think they need to have toxicity to be on an effective dose. And, and you mentioned um, darolutamide uh, as well, which I believe at this point in Australia is only um, uh, approved for castration-resistant M0 disease. Um, now, um, I, I've been told by, uh, I don't know if you've met Ian Davis, but uh, he once uh, told me very, very uh, uh, strongly that with the advent of PSMA pets and better imaging and um, better imaging modalities that M0 CRPC is is much less common. I believe he used the word extinct, but much less common than it used to be. Um, do, is, is So I guess my my question is, how frequently do you see M0 castration resistant in prostate cancer? Why isn't it just called, is it a different sort of disease entity to properly metastatic disease? And I guess, are you, do you know why they approved darolutamide just for that? So um, the reason why darolutamide is, um, so we've got to think, we've got to think M0 defined by, so prostate cancer, a discussion we always have to have um, Discussions are really long in prostate cancer consultations. I think everyone thinks prostate cancer is easy, but um, but basically, um, there's um, conventional imaging in prostate cancer, which is a CT and a, um, a whole body bone scan, um, and then you've got PSMA PET. And our trial data um, in prostate cancer is all based around conventional imaging. And so on M, so on conventional imaging, um, you know, and that's what the data that we use um, to make our decisions is based on. All trials, you know, rely. It's evolving a bit more now. That now that PET scans are more readily available under overseas, but we, you know, you can't um, you can't be in the Australian bubble and think that PSMA PET. PSMA PET has not been as easily accessible um, overseas or not accessible at all um, for for as long as it has been in in Australia. So so CT and bone scan has still been the standard to image patients. And so um, on the tri on the trials, um, you know, um, it's CT and bone scan. And so for M0 CRPC, you're talking about unconventional imaging. So yes, you're going to get a lot of men that have metastatic deposits that are picked up on a PSMA PET scan that aren't picked up on a CT or bone scan because the PET, you know, is a is a, a different modality. It's, it's going to be more sensitive as long as the patient has PSMA expression. And the majority of men in in prostate cancer, for most phases of prostate cancer, if it's an aggressive prostate cancer, are going to have high PSMA expression. Um, so yes, M0 uh, disease does exist both in PET and um, conventional imaging, but there's far more men that are going to have it on conventional imaging than PET. So when you look at um, M0 CRPC, you need to be judging to access um, darolutamide. I think there's darolutamide, enzalutamide, and I think apalutamide. They've all got M0 CRPC um, indications on PBS. Out of those, I, I favor darolutamide because of lower toxicity um, and, and good potency. Um, uh, on the androgen receptor, um, but um, when you're looking at that, you need to be thinking. You need to be thinking about um, uh, um, conventional imaging. So yes, you could have a hundred spots on a PET scan, but if they're not showing up on a CT and a bone scan, you can access that drug for that purpose. And the reason why they're improved in that setting is because that's where the randomized um, 
phase three data has been established. Um, so those studies were recruiting back in like um, uh, 20. 2013, 2014. So those those studies have had positive outcomes. Um, and so, you know, the, that's why they've gotten approved on PBS for that indication. Whereas um, some of the other studies in, um, so in the hormone sensitive setting, they have um, some of those studies, those studies are more recent. Um, and, and that's a bigger pot of um, money that would be required to pay for those patients. So even though there's efficacy in those, um, those arenas, um, the, I think basically there's the kind of health economics of funding in, in that that setting. Um, whereas I think the health economics was was satisfactory in the M0 um, CRPC setting. Um, so, but there's men, there's gonna be men um, that you do know where their um, metastases are in based on a PET scan. But the question is, is just because you know where they are, does that change the fact that they need systemic treatment or not? And you'll have some men that you find, you know, one spot um, on a PSMA PET or maybe a couple, and they've got a slowly rising PSA. They've had a really long period that, between um, the time they had maybe definitive prostatectomy or radiation to the primary and and relapse. And and you get the feeling that they've got some indol indolent disease, and you see you see you know some oligometastatic disease on a PET scan. Well, maybe that person doesn't need um, systemic um, treatment, and you could get away with giving them oligometastatic directed treatment. But there's a lot of men um, with M0 CRPC that even though you know where the spots are in um, in uh, on the PET scan um, versus the conventional imaging. Their PSA is going up steadily enough. You know that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, to show up on a on a PSMA PET scan, the the area needs to be um, at least two and probably about four millimeters to really show up reliably on the PET scan. So there's a lot of cancer that you're not seeing on that PET scan. Um, so to do oligometastatic treatment, if they have a really rapidly rising PSA or even a moderately fast rising PSMA uh, PSA, you're just gonna. It's like um, it's funny. Everywhere seems to have whack-a-mole. Uh, I thought maybe it'd be American reference, but it'd be a bit like whack-a-mole. You're going to hit one spot and then another spot's going to go up if you do oligometastatic um, directed treatment in that patient. So you do, you should be giving them drug. And so if you can get, you know, um, a drug in that setting where we used to not be able to, then then you should use it. And I, you know, I have no complaints about, yes, there's the semantics of M0. Is it really M0? No, it's probably not M0. But but in the end, it's M0 on conventional imaging for the purpose of PBS. Um, that population does exist. It's not a huge population, but it does exist. And it gives them access to a drug that we couldn't access otherwise. So it's not a bad thing to, to have that terminology. No, definitely, Megan. I think it comes down to that, the nuance, as you, as you said earlier, the nuanced approach to prostate cancer that all of the conversations in our clinic seem to go for quite quite a while because it's it's not as straightforward as starting versus stopping something. One of the older drugs that I guess I saw used previously a fair bit was cosidexobicalutamide. Where do you see, I mean, with the advent of, I guess, a newer generation of really effective medications in the castrate-sensitive space along with the castrate-resistant where do you see the role of the older generation of, I guess, bicalutamide um, moving forward? Yeah, um, it's interesting um, because the control arm on a lot of these um, hormone-sensitive metastatic studies, um, so like Enzymet, the control arm was ADT in combination with bicalutamide. But a lot of a lot of um, people were kind of like, well. You know, in practice, I don't. Act, I wouldn't actually use bicalutamide just on an ongoing basis in that setting. Um, a lot of um, oncologists would kind of use potentially the bicalutamide for the flare phenomenon if they're using an LHRH agonist, um, uh, and then they would stop it, and then only reintroduce it once the patient becomes castrate resistant and the PSA starts going up again. Um, but it was in the standard of care arm of a few of these hormone-sensitive trials, namely, you know, the Australian um, ANZEP-led Enzymet study. And and I guess when you look at the data for using, um, because we still don't have PBS access to, to these um, newer agents in the hormone-sensitive setting, um, 
so I guess the question is, do you use combined antigen blockade um, with Cosydex in that situation? But I think you could um, you could find evidence for and against um, uh, using it if you if you're only giving the patient ADT monotherapy um, and can't access, you know, they're they're not suitable for docetaxel and they're you can't access a, a novel um, antiantigen. You could you could justify either way. Um, I think in Enzymet, the big thing was I think they were giving a tablet in one arm, so they wanted to give a tablet in the other, and there wasn't you know compelling evidence to say um, either way whether or not you should you shouldn't use um, Cosydex. There's there's data for both, um, but with Cosydex, um, I I tend to only use it if I'm using an LHRH. Um, agonist to cover for the flare. So I tend to just, it comes in a box of 28. So I say about two weeks before you get the LHRH agonist, um, have it and then have the ADT and then have it for about two weeks after then the box is going to run out and you can stop it. And I don't keep it going. Um, but um, there's some men that get, you know, great response to ADT. Um and then their PSA starts to kind of simmer upwards after that. Um, and I still will use Cosydex in that situation where um, uh, we've got kind of a slowly simmering PSA. We want to do potentially something. Um, and Cosydex tends to be pretty low toxicity. The big, the bit, it can exacerbate hot flushes and it does cause more gynecomastia than um, ADT, um, which some men find one, aesthetically displeasing, and two, it can be quite tender, but you can give radiotherapy to the breast tissue if it is a big problem. But but there is a subset of men that get a really great response out of Cosydex and can go on and on and on and on with it. Um, and we know that because, you know, before we had access to these drugs, we had lots of men on it. Um, and so when I'm talking to my men about their metastatic prostate cancer, I'm talking, uh, you know, I tell them it's a marathon, not a sprint. And the more, because we can't cure them, the more treatments we can string together sequentially, um, you know, obviously nowadays we're putting a lot of the treatments together, but, but um, uh, you know, doing multimodality treatment or um, at the same time, but, but the more, th- more, more, more treatments we've got up our sleeve to string together, the longer hopefully we keep their symptoms under control and their cancer under control and hopefully the longer they live. So, you know, I don't think Cosydex is necessarily, there's a lot of men where their PSA, you know, it can turn quite, their disease is very aggressive. And in that case, I wouldn't necessarily stuff around with Cosydex for very long or maybe not at all. If I had a trial alternative or I might just put them directly on Abby or Inza. But there's a lot of men whose PSA kinetics are quite slow, like slowly rising. And so if you can, you can use a relatively well-tolerated drug and still keep those other things up your sleeve for later, um, it's not a not a bad situation. So that tends to be kind of where I use the Cosydex. There really does seem, and you're really giving a great illustration of the art uh, to treating prostate cancer as well as the science um, in terms of these sorts of subtleties. Um, I guess uh, we you mentioned uh, in the context of, of uh, your prostate genomics work as well, um, but the main, the, one of the things we really wanted to ask as well was uh, in terms of bracket testing, uh, you mentioned it's uh, present in around 15% of, of the patients with prostate cancer, but at what what point do your metaphorical antennae go up and do you think, oh, this is someone who I, who I really need to uh, look at this very closely? Do you have any sort of clinical uh, pearls about requesting the test obviously you have the expertise to actually look at the results and interpret them but for for us plebs who who don't know that yet um uh, at what point should someone sort of think of requesting that test we are very lucky at st vincent's where we can get access to testing quite easily and so the international guidelines are you should be doing genetic testing so germline testing on all metastatic men and certain high-risk localized um uh, prostate cancers you should be testing a certain number, a, a certain panel of genes, including BRCA1 and 2, but there are a few others um, in all men with metastatic disease. And so if there's a way for you to access that, then then all men should actually be having that um, because there have been studies that have shown that, um, you know, family history and age and, and, and whatnot don't necessarily predict um, who's going to have those mutations. Um, and now that it's not only relevant for the family members, it's also relevant therapeutically for that patient. It is really important. But a lot of places can't access that testing. They're not, um, it's not on uh, Medicare rebatable. 
Um, and getting access to genetics counselors is not easy at, at a lot of centers. So we're really lucky in that regard. But if you can access it, because there are a lot of clinical trials that are doing pre-screening and whatnot, if you can access it by referring to a clinical trial, I really just urge to just do it um, when as soon as you can. Um, on MBS, on the Medicare Benefit Scheme, you can um, you can access BRCA1 and 2 tissue testing um, once in, in castrate resistant prostate cancer and, um, and they can, you can test it once. Um, and so most people I think are, usually you're going to be using the archival specimen. Um, there's a downside to that in that, um, uh, as you get, um, uh, expose the patient to more treatment, they can pick up more somatic um, mutations. And so there can be some men that, um, if you use the archival kind of, um, primary prostate um, tissue, you're going to miss some of the, some that have actually accumulated a new um, BRCA mutation since that time. But getting tissue and prostate cancer is difficult. But I think a lot of clinicians, and, and I think it's a reasonable strategy, are testing once the patient becomes um, castrate resistant um, and accessing that Medicare benefits scheme funded um, BRCA test, tissue test at that time. And that's because there's a couple month turnaround time. Um, and a lot of times that's when um, the patients are oftentimes um, getting uh, either their Abby or Enza. Um, and you can only access the PARP inhibitor once they have had um, one of the novel androgen signaling inhibitors. So, so you're kind of thinking one step ahead if you get the, if you get the testing then. If they don't have tissue or um, the tissue fails, then um, Medicare will pay for a germline test. And so you're going to miss those that have picked up a somatic mutation, but you are going to, um, you know, it's better than nothing. Um, so you can get a germline test in men who who don't who you can't get tissue testing on. But so so pra practically speaking, if you're trying to access it just through, um, you know, the available options through Medicare, you're going to wait till castrate resistant setting, and it's going to be a tissue test, and it's going to be particularly for BRCA one and two. Um, in actuality speaking, there are so many clinical trials for prostate cancer that are doing pre-screening where you get a full foundation medicine report, even if you're not eligible for the actual trial. Um, and there's a lot of those in the hormone-sensitive setting space. We've got multiple. We've got um, Amplitude, which is um, uh, using a PARP inhibitor in patients with um, certain DNA damage repair defects. And so they get a full foundation medicine and an 85 gene um, uh, germline panel, and we get the report for that, um, whether they go on that trial or not. So only 10% of men are going to, or probably less because that's hormone sensitive, are going to have that, have the relevant mutation, but we're getting that information for every man that we pre-screen. So really, I, I encourage people to think about referring to trials to get that, that access. Um, but if you don't get it, um, or you've got men that are further down the track, um, who have already, you know, are already in the castrate resistant setting. I think as soon as they're castrate resistant, you should be thinking about whether to get that test and whether or not there's some fresh tissue you could get to make the test less likely to uh, make sure that the test is more likely to be successful because we're, there are there's a pretty high failure rate right now with the BRCA testing um, from from archival paraffin um, embedded tissue. Um, and if you get fresh tissue, you also, um, so you have a higher chance of getting a, an actual result from the test. Um, and, um, and you're looking at that tumor in its current state. And so if there's been some new somatic mutations that have pick, been picked up, you're not going to miss those by using archival tissue. But I think in actuality, most people are still using archival tissue because that's just what's available. Yeah, I think, um, I guess volunteering for this. Secondary biopsies uh, can sometimes be very difficult to convince people of with, with good reason. Yeah. And the DNA you get out of bone, bone is not going to be great. So it's, it's going to have a high failure rate too. So really you're looking at patients with, with soft tissue. If you've got like a soft tissue kind of, um, you know, node, um, and the more PSMA PET we're doing, you're finding a lot more nodes and a lot more places than we ever knew. So like I've had a lot of patients with superclavicular nodes that are accessible. So as, as pets, you know, patients are having a pet, um, PSMA pets aren't funded in the metastatic setting, but they're, they are being done in a lot of places. Um, so if you do see that soft tissue um, that's accessible, then then it's a worthwhile consideration. But, you know, if it's if, it, if they've got bone only disease, um, then then using the archival is, is per perfectly fine. Um, and 
and probably gonna um, at least yield a result rather than a failed failed test um, rather than going for a bone bone biopsy. My question is, where do you see immunotherapy's role in prostate cancer in the future? Mm, it's funny because prostate cancer was one of the first, you know, to have like quote immunotherapy, but it wasn't these immune checkpoint inhibitors. It was um, Cipollucil T and Prostavac. Um, but after those early, and those were pretty modest successes, um, mm. they're really, it's been pretty poor. Um, the the outcomes with um I mean with immune the more modern immune checkpoint inhibitors in prostate cancer. There is about five percent of men who do have mismatch repair deficiency in prostate cancer. Um and the literature has evolved to incorporate prostate cancer as um as a potential cancer in Lynch syndrome. Um so those men obviously could potentially um benefit from immune checkpoint inhibition. Um and you know you can oftentimes um if you've got a certain kind of phenotype um, in a, a man of a certain age, you can oftentimes convince your pathologist potentially to just do the IHC at least to, to test those um, uh, um, proteins. Um, uh, or, you know, obviously, if you get more com comprehensive sequencing on a trial, you might see that they've got that. Um, so that's one. That's a small subset of men, though. Um, aside from that, there's a lot of combination immuno-oncology agents. Um, coming through the trial space. So using in combination with, like, you've got the keynote studies where they've used it in combination with almost everything. I can't remember how many arms they've got. I'm pretty sure they're up to like M or N or something. Um, but the toxicity has been pretty significant um, with Enza and Dosi and, um, uh, and the benefit hasn't really, it's not been a synergistic um, kind of impact looking at the early results that we've got. So so I think using traditional prostate cancer drugs with an immune checkpoint inhibitor, you know, the simple one plus one um, kind of, we've got this and we've got that, let's put it together. Doesn't seem to be having much success, um, but but we're still getting data in that space. Um, the keynote studies, um, keynote 365, the latest arms are in um, small cell or neuroendocrine um, prostate cancers. And so I guess that's a big question. We don't know because there has been some success with immuno-oncology agents in in other small cell cancers and new neuroendocrine car uh, tumors, um, uh, carcinomas. Um, but um, there has been, um, so Shanine Sandu from Peter McCallum did the PRINCE study, which was an early phase study looking at um, pembrolizumab and um, lutetium PSMA in combination. And those um, those results have been really interesting. And now evolution is ipilimumab and nivolumab plus uh, in combination with um, lutetium. Um, and so there's some Australian-led studies coming through. Um, and they're looking promising for hopefully kind of um, leveraging the high response rate you get with lutetium PSMA and the kind of more durable responses you might get with that added neoantigen presenta presentation with um, with the um, immune checkpoint inhibitor. So that's an evolving space. Um, but the results so far, you know, the, we've only got the results for the early, early um, phase study. We don't have, so it's pretty well tolerated um, uh, and some signs of efficacy, but we need to wait for that data to evolve. But I think I think we need to, I think using the immune checkpoint in, monotherapy, it's only gonna work in that small proportion that maybe have mismatch repair um, deficiency and um, using our traditional prostate cancer drugs um, is seemingly not, not succeeding. So I think we need to look more at these more um, novel treatments coming through and, and combinations. I guess the other places um, that's really re emerging is um, is the bite molecules, so the bispecific antibodies. So kind of um, they'll bind to the PSMA and also have kind of a, um, a T cell activator. So there's a lot of those drugs coming through, but they have been pretty toxic. There's a high rate of um, cytokine release syndrome, but that's an evolving space as well. Um, and there's a lot of those studies kind of percolating around the world, but um, particularly in Australia, we've got, there's a lot of those studies around that can be accessed. Um, so it's a space to to watch kind of those, those more novel combinations or more novel um, immune agents. You've sort of answered uh, our next question already, uh, Megan, which is, um, uh, I, I guess if immunotherapy is still very much a question mark, 
we, you've mentioned lutetium. We've got very exciting data of the uh, not-so-novel antiandrogens now, I guess, um, but using mm -hmm. them in the hormone-sensitive space. Um, but your, your crystal ball that, although it couldn't uh, predict the current political state in America, um, if you were to cast that forward, um, uh, I guess, for any other sort of areas that have captured your interest going forward uh, that might become... Uh, available to to uh, an oncologist practicing, say, in uh, five or ten years. Are there any other areas of interest that are uh, particularly captured your interest as maybe game changers, as they say? It's a bit of a hackneyed phrase, but hey. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I am not sure. I think I think finding the right combination to go with lutetium for the men that don't get you know the really exceptional response, um, and um, you know, they're looking at different radiosensitizers. We had the Lupin study, which was the Dronoxol. There's um, the Luparp study, which is a phase two with Alaparib, um, uh with lutetium PCMA. But I think my experience with the with the pembrolizumab in combination with lutetium PCMA for my my subset of patients that was on were on that study, it looked pretty exciting. Um, but um, I, yeah, I'm, I. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. Um, I think moving some of these, um, you know, PI3, the AKT inhibitors in the castrate resistant and like late line setting were pretty disappointing, but there's some scientific and like physiological rationale to think that using them earlier on before you get resistance in um, uh, castrate resistant disease will actually kind of um, increase the efficacy. Um, uh, and, you know, the PI3 kinase inhibitors, a lot of them were really quite toxic, but they, there's been a lot of generations and now the AKT inhibitors are pretty well um, tolerated. So I think there's some um, some interesting um, some interesting targeted agents coming earlier on in the piece. And the question is, is can that actually take um, take a pretty mildly efficacious drug in the late line setting and actually improve it rather than waiting for resistance pathways to really be heavily activated, actually hitting them before before they've had a chance to take hold. Um, yeah, so I think the combinations with the the IO and lutetium PSMA and and some of these more targeted agents coming earlier in the space, I'm very interested to see what happens there because I think um, physiologically it makes more sense to do that. Um, but yeah, as far as Anthony Joshua is the one to ask about that. He um, he I I can only my brain can only absorb the kind of current and and on the cusp things. Um, his brain is uh, like a supercomputer. It can it, it can absorb all these these things that are just a glimmer in some scientist's eyes. <laughs> we always so, we always know there's yeah. one Star Trek reference here, so that was great. Thanks, Megan. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even know that was Star Trek. I would say that I would caution, um, you know, kind of judging a treatment based on like your experience with it. Um, you know, um, the keynote study in um, metastatic bladder cancer um, where um, falling failure of platinum, it was PIMBRO versus physician's choice. And we were using Vince Lunin at um, Westmead and all our PIMBRO patients went terribly and all our Vince Lunin patients went better, or, like did, did pretty okay. And we're like, there's no way this is going to be a positive study. Um, and of course it was a positive study. So, I mean, that's why they have to, they, you have to have an adequate sample size. So, well, I found um, my experience with the patients on the print study with the PIMBRO and lutetium PCMA, like very positive. There were some really like, um, you know, patients that really didn't respond well. It just happened they weren't any of mine um, or at our site. So, so um, it is important to see that that later phase data come through. Yeah, that, that's the thing with the individual response to treatment. It's always very difficult when you don't have such an, you don't have a view of everyone. I think the final question before we sort of sum up and release you back to your weekend, Megan, is if you went back to when you started your journey, you know, you started oncology or training and you were sort of having a discussion with your younger self or a training such as yourself, what, if you could give them one piece of advice for, I guess, their career, their life, your research, all that sort of stuff, what would it be? Yeah, you gave me a list of these questions and that one I did find it. I thought about it and I um I think I think um what I would say is is don't be afraid to take a break or um 
or look after yourself. Um, oncology, you know, to do it right, you do have to invest a piece of yourself um, day in and day out. At, not to do it right, sorry, to do it, well, to do it <laughs> yeah, my way. I get it. <laughs> Um, uh, you know, it's, it's an emotionally draining specialty. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, now we're looking at, you know, after your long period of training, a lot of people are looking at PhDs, which, you know, has financial implications and mental implications for just having to do that and things like that. And I'm glad I did the PhD, but, um, but, you know, it was tough. Um, and, and, you know, having a string, even more, more training and trying to balance like part-time clinical work while doing that, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and a lot of staff specialist positions coming through now, you know, there's not a lot around, but a lot of them are part-time. So you're trying to juggle, you know, um, patients with full-time needs in a part-time space. So I think, you know, if you feel like you're starting to burn out, um, you know, um, there's a lot of professional coaching around. There's a lot of burnout courses um, to try to kind of help you set boundaries and help you say no, because it can be hard. Um, but also don't be afraid to take take a break. Um, you know, I think I think there's always the worry that if you jump out of the job space, um, uh, it'll be hard to get back in. But I don't I think I think it's tough to get a staff specialist job anyway. And I don't think necessarily taking a break. Um somewhere is going to make it make it any any um any harder so I think make sure you look after yourself it's like you know, like I tell my prostate cancer patients it's a it's a marathon not a sprint um so um you know hopefully you're going to have a long healthy career and to do that you do need to be able to look after yourself um and know how to set some boundaries and 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 take the time for yourself um one of my supervisors as a trainee you know he always had his next holiday planned with his family. Um, so he was always kind of within six weeks of having come back from a holiday and always within six weeks of going on another one or, or having some time off. And I think that's a really healthy thing to do. Um, a lot of us forget or don't or feel like we can't take our time off and we accumulate and accumulate, especially during COVID. Um, but I think it's important to have something to look forward to and, and some at some time to recharge the batteries. So I think that's kind of, I think, looking after yourself and your own own well-being is the only way you're going to be able to last in a long career and look after your patients properly and and enjoy you know the privilege we have looking after these patients very very wise words well thank you so much megan as josh has said um offering your time uh and over an hour now of time and, and all every minute of it jam-packed with with uh, incredible wisdom and experience, a true tour de force in prostate cancer. So, th so thank you so much, so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me and happy to help. So that concludes our interview. Um, and thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next week as always. With, uh, more